Thanks for joining me today for Northwest Fish Passage podcast. Northwest Fish Passage is a small strategic collaborative partnership of scientists, planners, and engineers based in Bellingham. Today I'm here with James Rasmussen, who is a Duwamish tribal member and the Superfund manager with an amazing organization called Duwamish River Cleanup Coalition. I have known James for the past nine years through the Duwamish Alive events and other events along the Duwamish River. Thank you, to James, so much for joining me on Zoom today. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> so for over 30 years, you have been an important advocate for the Duwamish tribe and the Duwamish River. Can you please tell me more about why the Duwamish River is so important to you? It's kind of the way I was raised and taught as a young child, especially by my grandfather. Both my mother and father worked, so I was home with my grandfather a lot. We did travel to different things together, including um, White Swan and Yakima and other Indian events that he would do sound for. One of the things that he taught me was, was that all of the creatures that we have here and, and life that we have here are important, and they're like part of our family. Speaking of the Duwamish River, like otters and um, salmon, a heron and eagles um, are all part of that family, all the way down to what we used to call the mud puppies or, or the little salamanders and things like that. They're all part of our family. And then you have uh, like cedar trees, you know, that's like grandmother and grandfather. In the old days, my people made everything out of cedar. Our houses were made out of cedar. Our canoes were made out of cedar. The baskets that we used to gather and cook in were made out of cedar. Um, our clothes were made out of cedar. So my, my grandfather, you know, a lot of people, or a lot of tribes today, they, they refer to tribes as we're salmon people, right? But my grandfather never said that. He, his thing is that we're cedar people. That's what we are. Um, because that's so important to us. But when when I relate it back to the river, the river is like its own living thing. All of the organisms and things like that that make it up and either harm that's happening to them, the river itself is alive. It has its own force and its own life and a lot of organisms that make up that life of what it is, what that river is. Fairly recently, um, there was an elder who spoke at a paddle event that the Duwamish tribe hosted. And one of the things that they said is that there, without a river, there isn't a tribe. And without a tribe, there isn't a river. Especially in this area, the mouths of the river were where the tribes were. Mm -hmm. And so that was an important thing to remember. It became important to me because I, the, the work that I started to do so many years ago was something that I kind of fell into. I, I had just recently been elected to the council. I was taking my mother's position. And yeah, the, which is the third generation of my family to serve on the tribal council. My grandfather started in 1925 after her, him. My mother served on it for about 30 years and then uh, I took over for her. When I first started serving on council, one of the things that I, I was looking at is there's, there were two issues, archeological sites 
that have just started to be turned up. And uh, one of those is Hayapus Park or T107, as we all know it. Um, that is an archeological site. This is before I came onto council, but the tribe was able to have influence on that site and actually save it from a port development, which has worked in, in so many wonderful ways. That started me thinking about some environmental stuff and I was introduced to a person by the name of John Beale. Uh, John Beale was uh, working on restoration of Ham Creek. Um, at that time, he had, he, has, he had no science background. He had you know, nothing at all. He was diagnosed with a really bad heart and doctor says you have less than a year to live. So he decided that he wanted to try to do something really good. So he started working on this creek that he knew about and he was pulling garbage out and mattresses and washing machines and that kind of stuff. And then tracing the creek and all of that type of thing. And things were improving in, in, in the basin of the creek. And so he wanted, he talked to me about having the tribe support his work and well, we have to talk to the council. And so we came into a council meeting, you know, did this presentation. And then as we do in the council, we said, thank you very much and leave and we'll talk about it. My recommendation to the council was, I think this is important. I think we should, you know, we should support this work. Cecile, who is still the chairperson of the tribe today, and she looked up at me and she says, good, you should do it. <laughs> and so I kind of became that liaison with John, which then kind of opened up a whole thing of being the uh, like an environmental front person for the Duwamish tribe, involved with the Green Duwamish Watershed Alliance and a lot of other nonprofit groups in the area um, that, that are also working um, on, um, well, the watershed restoration, but in, in a lot of cases, um, the Duwamish River, learning more about it, sitting on steering committees, learning more about the science and the technical aspects of it. And over the years, I've, I've gained an awful lot of knowledge of just working on these things um, to be able to um, kind of hold my own in, in most technical or scientific discussions about restoration or how to um, clean up the river. So that's kind of how I started myself, getting involved with the river. And it, it's, it's just continued. Duwamish Tribe was one of the original founding members of the Duwamish River Cleanup Coalition because we had already been working on a lot of restoration projects and other things as part of the first river patrols on the river. You know, so the, the, the actual designation of it as a super fund, that effort started years before it was designated as a super fund site. Uh, in 2001, it's when it was designated by EPA. There were many years before that and many out-of-court settlements and things like that that happened on the Duwamish River and many people trying to do something and couldn't do what they needed to do. And so a lot of the organizations we were working with at that time were pushing that this should be designated a Superfund site and that will give us the momentum to really do work on the Duwamish River, which I have to say, it takes a long time to do this, but the work that has been done on the river is, is, is really making it come back. Mm -hmm. So what year did the Duwamish River Cleanup Coalition start? 
in 2001 when EPA um, designated the Superfund site, um, most of the groups that were part of the Green Duwamish Watershed Alliance at that time, which we were meeting and advocating for the Superfund, we kind of got together and said, you know, we need to kind of, so, so we're not duplicating efforts. Um, and that's when BJ came in and said, you know, I, I really think we can form another organization. I'll be a coordinator. I know where I can get some grant funds to be able to do this. And that's where DRCC started. A coalition of about 10 people or 10 organizations, mm -hmm. um, including the South Park Neighborhood Association and Georgetown Community Council, people for Puget Sound, Puget Sound Keeper, all kinds of different groups. And, um, and so that's where it all started. And within a year, we were designated the community advisory group um, to EPA, which they like to do that so that they have somebody to talk to to help them work in the community. They have a community involvement person, but they like to work with somebody within the community. And so the community advisory group, which is an official position with EPA, we became within that first year. And um, then after another year, we were able to get the technical advisory grant, which referred to as, you know, you've got CAG, the community advisory group. Now you've got TAG, you know, technical advisory grant. Um, and the TAG gives us not a lot of money, but like $25,000 a year. But that's specifically to hire a separate technical advisor for the community outside of EPA and outside of responsible parties. The community actually has its own technical advisor um, to go through you know, these huge tombs of data and everything else. And, and we work with that technical advisor, and um, number one, so that the community can actually understand what they're saying. Mm -hmm. And uh, we were very lucky to get Peter Defer as our um, technical advisor who has done this kind of work uh, throughout the country. Um, he was working on three or four sites up here in the Northwest. He's based out of Virginia, but um, he also um, was, a, was a technical advisor on the Hudson River, um, which was just ahead of us. Technical advisor down on Portland Harbor, Port Angeles, and, and other places here. So that part worked out real well. Um, for us. The organization just kept kind of growing and, and being effective and kind of changing the way that community outreach really is done. And that's something that I'm really proud of the organization um, for doing. We've kind of rewritten that book. It's not easier. It's, mm -hmm. it's, it's different. So what are some of the biggest challenges that you see have been with the cleanup? Well, like I said, the amount of time that this stuff takes, but when you're so involved in it, you understand why. This is a process. EPA has a very good process, and, but it just takes a long time. The, you know, so, so there's that part, but I'm glad that we didn't try to rush through anything because we've learned so much about the river. I think probably some of the disappointments were our very first early action site um, after we were formed was um, Duwamish Diagonal, 
which is kind of right across the street from Hopkins Park, um, or across the river, street, river thing. <laughs> it was already a plan that was put together by NOAA as part of the Elliott Bay Duwamish Settlement Panel, and it was one of their last projects that they did do a, a public presentation, but it wasn't a hearing. We weren't making comment on it at all. They were just telling us what they were going to do. And when we did make some comments in that meeting, the guy that was running NOAA, you know, kind of just said, hey, don't worry about it. We know what we're doing. We've done this before. We made some predictions. We thought that it would be probably recontaminated within five years. And we were wrong. It was recontaminated within one year. And the dredge work that was done there was spread contamination up and down the river because a company came in from Canada, nothing against Canada, but if you're a dredge company, you're, you're trying to get the job done as quickly as possible because that's how you make money. They were moving really quick with a very old-fashioned dredge, pulling contaminated mud out, and uh, we had boats in the water all the way up the river and down the river, and we were documenting that the river was running brown all the way up to the end of Harbor Island, all the way down to the turning basin. And so if there wasn't a place that was contam wasn't contaminated before they started that work, it was afterwards. But there were some important lessons learned. With the recontamination, King County, because this is the King County outfall, realized that they have a problem within their lines, that the contamination in the sediments that are in the lines what was what was recontaminating that site. And from that time forward, that was the beginning of where you start seeing the vac trucks. Mm -hmm. And so cleaning out their lines has become an important part of source control. And that's because of what happened there. And maybe because we were shining a light on it as well. And the other part of it was, is that was, I believe, the last time that an old dredge and just an old way of doing dredging was done on the river. So that, that was kind of a disappointment, but. Um, yeah, what year was that? That was soon after we formed. And so it was probably 2001-ish or two, something like that. We've had seven early action sites. And actually it's really kind of confusing because they added Norfolk, um, which is another outfall up by the Turning Basin, which is on the other side of the river, upriver. And uh, that was actually done before the Superfund was designated. Being involved with this river at that time, I was involved with that. And that was actually done in a completely different way because there was a, a large parking lot, which is the Boeing parking lot, and they did a vacuum dredge which we were always recommending. And the vacuum dredge um, needs to have a lot of space to dewater, you know, the sediments that come out of the river in the vacuum dredge. And they were able to do that. And so that, that worked out more successfully. But like we said, it was recontaminated again in five years. And the thing that we look at is that now we're going through the full river cleanup and planning for that. There's more testing being done around that site. It's going to be re-cleaned out. And we know a lot more about stopping sources of contamination into the river. If you can tell me a little bit more about some of the successes with 
uh, early actions. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm very proud of how DRCC has, has worked on these sites. In some cases, they're, they're different public um, access, you know, or public involvement in either a RICRA site or a CERCLA site or, or you know, the, just some things are done differently. But in each one of the early actions that happened after Duwamish Diagonal, where we did have public comment, the draft plan that was put out by EPA was strengthened through that public comment. In other words, there's more cleanup that happened in those early actions that, that led up to where we are today, working on, on the full river cleanup. In a lot of those cases, it, it's because the community voice was heard. The community got involved and told their story about what they wanted and what they wanted to see and why they wanted to see it. And we were able to give them the technical background that they needed to be able to speak the language sometimes of EPA. And that part of it has worked out real well. The success stories that we have is Boeing Plant 2, which is one of the largest dredges ever done in the United States, over a mile long on the side of the river, which is one of the cleanest dredges that have ever been done in the United States as far as um, contaminants coming off of a dredge. And then uh, T-117, uh, the old Malarkey asphalt site, which originally was just going to be cleaned up to an industrial level because it was industrial land and EPA accepted that. And the community got involved and they said, wait a minute, we live right across the street from this place. So how can you say it's going to be just cleaned up to an industrial level? We brought two or three buses to a port commission meeting, I think in SeaTac. And the community, one after the other, was telling the Port Commission why it should be a better cleanup. Then the Port Commission actually came to South Park and um, held a Port Commission meeting in which they announced that they were, they were telling their staff to make it the highest level of cleanup. And so that was a big success and also was a success for the port because along with a Superfund site comes what we call the Natural Resource Damage Assessment, NERDA sites. And the Natural Resource Damage Assessment, each one of the big responsible parties, in this case, the Lower Duwamish Waterway Group, or the Port of Seattle, King County, the City of Seattle, and the Boeing Company, who came forward and really helped EPA designate this a Superfund site because EPA needs to have partners who can do, you know, the work and the technical work that needs to be done and the money, you know, to be able to do that. The work that was, that, that was done at that site allowed the Port of Seattle to use that then because it was cleaned up to the higher level as their natural resource damage assessment site. Now, it took years to finally get working on it, but right now, along the river, they are, are pulling back the shoreline, they're putting in the tree stumps, and then they're going to work on an intertidal area, and it's going to have public access, it's going to have a small handboat launch. This is exciting to see, because um, one of the things that we wanted to be able to do was to pair river access and public access and open space 
with the cleanup of the river. And that's where that's happened. Really good to see as we move forward on that. And it'll be really exciting when it's done. Yeah, it's very exciting. I had the opportunity to do some water sampling uh, as part of that over the last couple of years. We met uh, originally at the T107, what was T107, which is now officially yeah. Village Park. Can you tell me and the audience a little bit more about that site? The archaeological site, um, and it's known as Duwamish Site 1 because it's the first site where they actually stopped and found the remains of the Duwamish people that were there, not remains in bodies because they weren't there, but all the types of things that you would find. Um, around a village site. The importance of that is that this is the stretch of the old river. It's the only stretch of the old river that there is. I mean, we have some of the slips along the river and that is where the old river was, but this is a complete horseshoe bend that is still there. The last part of the mud flats that used to be there is on the north side of Kellogg Island, which Kellogg Island is, is on the other side of the bend from, from the bank of the river. One of the things working on fish restoration in particular that we found is that that site is one of the most important habitat sites on the river because as salmon are moving up the river to go up to spawn, this is a place where they can still feed because it's brackish water. And as soon as they make that transition from um, salt water to fresh water, they don't feed anymore, they go to spawn. And that's the end of the life cycle for the salmon. But also as the fry come out, this is also was an incredibly important place. They were working on, on salmon restoration, which I've been doing also for a long time. The testing that was done, which is just you know a sane net you know, when the fish are running, just to be able to see what, you know, what's there, you know, are they feeding and what are they feeding on and that type of thing. And when the fry are coming out, they do the same thing and, and they, they test, always came up with something there. And so the saving of the village site and the importance of it, um, the way, the way that I tell the story is that especially during those days in the, in, the, in the 70s, if the port wanted to do something, it just did. It, I mean, nobody can stop the port from doing anything. Um, that's just the way it was. But in this case, it was my ancestors that kind of reached up, you know, out of the ground and said, no, not this place. And they're the only ones who could have done that. Mm-hmm. And so... You know, that, that kind of story is, is an important thing to remember, how these things all work together. Just kind of tell that story. The, the, the river is made up of levels of history. And, you know, from when my people were there to the industrial industrialization of, of the river and the strengthening of the river and all that, you know, it's, I always look at it as, it's not bad. It's not good. There's all kinds of stories in between that we need to tell. Mm-hmm. 
and and so we really try to tell those stories because telling stories is 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 the best way for people to really understand that's one of the reasons i'm so happy you're here today talking to me telling your stories what are you most hopeful about in upcoming years well we're working on right now the epa has decided to um kind of divide the river into thirds and the upper the middle and the lower we're putting together a remediation plan which is the cleanup plan now we already have the record of decision and that tells how the river is to be cleaned up but specific plans you know about what are we going to do at this site we're going through the testing part of that right now what i look forward to right now is in some ways an organization like drcc gives epa a backbone you know that because so much of what epa does is is actual in codified in law right we can we can tell people to do this but we can't tell them to do this we can do you know we can go so far but we can't go as far as we need to because things like cost and everything else have to be part of the decisions that we make all of that makes complete sense and and we work to keep pushing epa now we're to the point to where epa you know has the record of decision so they can only do so much we're starting to look at our relationship with the responsible parties because they're the ones who actually go to epa and say well maybe on this site we will take everything out instead of only taking it down to a certain level and then capping it and that's the type of conversation that i want to be able to have we look at so many of the cleanup sites across the country in particular the hudson river and through the process the cities and um, municipalities and everything else around the hudson river were very much in support of ge and ge was the big responsible party on the hudson river um, because of the um, pcbs that, that came out of their plan epa going through the process that they go through only so much that they could make them do and they did as they went through that cleanup process all of a sudden a lot of the people that were around the river the municipalities the cities were realizing that it was it was actually getting cleaner and they got to the end of the the process all of these municipalities were now going to epa and saying can't we make them do just a little bit more because if we do then then we can open up fishing in a lot of these different places and EPA had to go back to them, no, we have an agreed order. We cannot make anybody do anything more. And so that's the time and the process that we're in right now. How do we have that conversation so that we can get the best possible cleanup we can? It's never gonna be pristine and that's not what we're asking for. But how do we, how do we get so that we don't wind up in the position all of those cities around the Hudson River found themselves in that they can't we make them do more you know so that that is one of the things that I look forward to now is is to to really in the next couple of years for me as we go through this process to 
really start talking to the responsible parties. And that's not just the Lower Duwamish Waterway Group. That's also over a hundred businesses along the river who also are responsible. And that's kind of a separate thing. So talking with these businesses and everything else, we, we, we're trying to do programs, especially with industries in the, in the Duwamish Valley, where kids who live like in South Park or in Georgetown can maybe intern at one of these industries, you know, and we also have, you know, goals of, um, which has already actually started, a marine high school based in the Duwamish Valley that gives kids a background on all kinds of things related to the marine industries. And so gives them an opportunity to, you know, work with the port, work with some of the other industries, the tug industries and everything else. And these are all really good jobs. And having kids from the neighborhood be able to do that is, is really good. And that kind of sprung out of the, we have the Duwamish Valley Youth Corps, which is something we're also very proud of. And, and they're incredibly effective. Um, uh, it's really kind of sad sometimes because you only have like 40 positions and you have 70 kids show up that want to be part of it. And, you know, we have to be honest and say, um, we can only take 40. And, you know, but we'll put you on a list for next time. And, you know, um, again, and these kids have learned so much. And uh, from everything about, you know, environmental justice to planting plants and taking out invasives in a lot of different places, cleaning up storm pipes, what storm, what, what is storm water and, and how does source control affect the river and Air pollution, actually the Duwamish Valley Youth Corps has been part in the last couple of years of a moss study. And it was the kids that were actually out doing the sampling. And we had a, another group uh, of college kids that did sampling as well. And there, there was no difference between the two. The kids did just as good a job as, as the more um, technical savvy college students and they got to see the process all the way through and at the end of the process which was only a couple of months ago now they did the presentations to people and people got so impressed i mean they're now doing presentations for the city council for the county council you know all kinds of different things and we're not done with it yet we're, we're going back out and doing more work you know on that these are all positive things and, and to find that linkage so that the industries mm -hmm. in the Duwamish Valley who have been kind of separated from the community because they don't sell anything to the community. And, and that history is, is something that's also really important. It was, you know, South Park and Georgetown are older than, you know, like the city of Seattle. Georgetown had its city hall way before the city of Seattle did. And there was still the old river. Now, when they went to straighten the river and create the industrial area the way they did, anything that didn't have a house on it was zoned industrial. Unlike other fence line communities across the country, like in Texas or New Orleans or Louisiana or other things, instead of people moving closer to the industries because that land is cheaper, 
it was the industries that moved into these communities. Mm -hmm. So that's a big difference. They, the, the communities were there first. And just that separation between the industries and the community is something that we want to be able to work on to really create a relationship. And how do we build those bridges? How do we do that? That's what I'm looking forward to in the next couple of years is really getting to that point. And then the communities and the industries are actually in agreement. The mm -hmm. industries, um, they realize that they have to do this, but they have said, we only want to do this once. It's exactly the same thing that the community says. If we're going to do it, do it good and do it once. We don't want to come back 25 years after we're done with the cleanup and then have to go do it again because everything wasn't done right. And that's exactly what the industries are saying as well. They don't want to come back in 25 years. And usually it also comes with, you know, give us the rules. If you can give us the rules, we follow these rules, we're going to be okay. Those rules now are much more easily understood by industries than they ever have been on the river. And that's also something that the industries need. We, we always talk about this is the opportunity to create a river for all. Mm -hmm. And that means that we want to have the industries thrive, a place where they can thrive, doing cleaner work, but thrive. A place where the communities, especially the longstanding immigrant communities that are there, getting them an opportunity to thrive as well. And the last part of that is for the fish and wildlife that are on the river. Now, when I started a long time ago, um, you never saw heron, you, you didn't definitely didn't see eagles, otters, or anything like that. They weren't there. It was a pretty bleak place. Today, we know because people have done surveys, that we have a more variety of wildlife on the Duwamish River than any other place in the city of Seattle. And that includes Magnuson Park, the Arboretum, or other places where you might think, well, of course, there's going to be a lot of wildlife here. <laughs> Not more than, than on the river right now, which is natural because it's the estuary. <laughs> and wildlife are, are drawn to the estuary. Now, we're working hard on being able to restore salmon, they're not getting any better, but they're not getting any worse. And we've always taken what we call the multi-species approach. You cannot create a habitat site that's only gonna help salmon, right? It has to help all of the wildlife in order to help the salmon. Mm -hmm. And so those habitat sites that have been built and that are happening there are actually working and the wildlife is coming back, which means that that's a good sign for salmon. Now, we still have, especially during salmon returning up the river, which is when the rain starts, and we have events called first flushes that, you know, the stormwater that goes into the river is sometimes pretty toxic. It's, it's a sad thing to see because, um, and I've seen this several times, as a salmon is returning, and if he, if he gets caught in that, you know, their, their gills fill up with like copper and other things that are coming out of the stormwater. They, they go into this circular dance kind of thing 
and it's such a sad thing to see because there's nothing you can do you know you and it and it takes a little while for a salmon to die that's something we still need to work on and everybody's getting better at it we see a lot of improvement that part of it is it it's a big thing to get over so and as far as the 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 plan to restore salmon the big step is going to be when we can get beyond Howard Hansen Dam and put a fish ladder there. Mm-hmm. So, because we're only using half of the watershed, if we can get salmon into the upper watershed, which is much more pristine, we really might be able to really restore a run of salmon. It's amazing that we have a run of wild salmon, you know, on the Green Duwamish River, mm-hmm. which is, you know, one of the most populated watersheds in the state of Washington that they're holding their own right now is oh that's a good thing and that's the positive that I look forward to and that the the other wildlife is starting to come back we see regularly eagles and heron are always there now and and otters and sea lions and um, all kinds of things that you would never see there before. And and now they're there. It's a really funny thing because the guy that runs the South Park Marina, his name is Guy Crow. Um, he's been there forever. And all of a sudden, it was uh, a couple of summers ago, and we get a call, and he says, I've got these huge sea lions that are sitting on my docks. What do I do? You know, he's never seen that before. And I said, well... You know, I, I I would be careful. And he said, these guys are huge, you know, because <laughs> they are huge. And he said, what you might do is, you know, just try to scare them off a little bit, you know, clap your hands, yell at them. And if that doesn't work, you, you might get a stick and maybe poke them a little bit to get them motivated to move. Um, but if they won't, they won't. And you can't change that. So you just got to kind of work around it. This is a good problem, actually. Even though sea lion eats salmon, you know, that's part of life, you know. Like eagles eat heron. That helps keep the heron population real healthy. And with the sea lions and the salmon, that keeps salmon population healthy. Which is why wolves and and elk and deer, you know, have a symbiotic relationship. Yeah, wolves eat deer. Yeah. And that helps the population of deer. So it all works together. What are some ways that the listeners can become more involved in the Duwamish River cleanup efforts and support the community? We have a a website and EPA has a website. There's all kinds of alerts that you can get about what's going on, but it's just to understand the process and what's going on. Number one, understand that we have a river in the city of Seattle. Most people in the city of Seattle don't even know that that river is there. Um, It's kind of hidden. If you drive down East Marginal Way, you won't see it. If you drive down West Marginal Way, which is on the other side of the river, if you know where to look really quickly, you'll see it. But, you know, and if you're going over the Spokane Street Bridge, which we haven't been able to do for a little while, but if you're going over the bridge, it was just recently that they they put a sign up saying you're crossing the Duwamish waterway. People look down at it and they kind of go, well, there's Harbor Island, you know, but they don't, it, they don't know, hey, this is a river. It's, it, you know, it, 
it goes up the watershed. And, and so to understand those things, there's two parts to this. You and I were talking about um, the, the um, indigenous people and that type of thing that are there. And there's something that I firmly believe in order to fully restore the Duwamish River, just understanding more about it, reading some stuff about it, that would be incredibly important. Mm -hmm. But the other part is to restore the Duwamish tribe mm -hmm. because that's hand in glove with the river. And right now the Duwamish tribe is not federally recognized. Um, they've been through processes. They were recognized for like a weekend at the end of the Clinton administration and beginning of the Bush administration. Then everything went sideways and there was an awful lot of lobbying done in Washington, D.C. And it got turned back to an old decision, which was completely improperty. We're in federal court. The point I want to be able to make is the other thing that people can do is support an organization called Real Rent Duwamish. And Real Rent Duwamish is people that kind of like donate to public radio, right? Mm -hmm. you, you say, I'll give you $10 a month. And now there's like thousands of people that are part of Real Rent. And what that does is gives the tribe a steady stream of income that they can now do projects. And now they can do a lot of the stuff that is really important. And, and the tribe is very involved in the cleanup. Our tours that we do when we could do tours before and usually is a two-part thing one at the longhouse to understand the history of the area and then going across the street and and actually taking a look at the river itself and explaining about the superfund site and what's going on and being able to see the old river and you know what's what's been um cut through and then tell that story is that and they're very involved in that right now um, they're looking at improvements that can be made to Ta'apus Park now. We take our hands, our life in our hands, crossing West Marginal Way because there's no um, crosswalk there. But now there's going to be a crosswalk there. The city has actually funded it. Um, they're going through design plans right now, so they'll make it a lot safer. And we're talking about art that might be able to go up around that and and to really be able to to tell that story um, through that, through the park, through the longhouse, and through the river. That would be a real wonderful thing, I think. And so if somebody really wanted to, you know, go down to the longhouse, just, you know, it's open, even now it's open, like Tuesday through Saturday or something like that, on regular business hours. So I think they open at 10 o'clock and close at five or six. Um, but you'll learn in a whole bunch of stuff and then you go across the street and mm -hmm. take a walk through the park. And all of a sudden, you're going to have an understanding of, of, of the river that is much deeper. Anybody who's worked on the river or done work on the river, your life has changed. Mm -hmm. and, and we know that, you know, yeah. so that we're all about changing lives. So. Well, thank you, James, so much. No problem at all. I really appreciate your time and all the work that you're doing is so inspiring. I'm excited to share this with many other people. And I will definitely put a link to the different websites you mentioned. So thank you.
No problem at all. I want to thank you for the opportunity because that's important. We take the time to be able to make sure we, we talk to as many people as we can. So thank you for that opportunity to do so. I would like to end by expressing my deepest respect and gratitude to the many indigenous peoples and tribal nations in the Salish Sea region for their enduring care and protection of our shared lands and waterways. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe, write a review, and tell a friend. Have a great day.